welcome to Check It Out at EVPL, a podcast from your local library. I'm your host, Ellen. And I'm your host, Lori. And today we are joined by Jamie. I'm from McCullough Branch Library. And Sharon Dennis. And Sharon, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) I am a local actor, director, theatrician is a good word that I kind of like. I'm involved in all aspects of theater. And I have been asked to help with a project involving Shakespeare. And so I am pleased to be here to be able to talk about Shakespeare. Exciting. Yeah. You've done a couple of Shakespeare things throughout the years. I know we had a Shakespeare show at one point. um, Do you prefer calling them plays? I don't know. Yes, they're plays. (laughs) (laughs) i am not very well versed on the knowledge of the theater so please excuse me well we actually have several different theater companies in town and um, all of them at one time or another have done shakespeare but there's a couple of them that actually emphasize shakespeare do almost exclusively shakespeare so there's a lot of it available in this city i've definitely made it out to the shakespeare in a part events when i can i really enjoy watching those i'm usually translating for my husband as he sits beside me (laughs) because I'm, you know, more into it than he is. And he's he kind of gets this puzzled look on his face. But, you know, he'll go, what's going on? And I'll go, okay, well, this is what's happening. (laughs) So I definitely got involved with Shakespeare by being a theater kid in high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about the rest of you guys? What was your kind of first introduction to the Bard? Probably school, honestly. I was into the Greek plays when I was younger because I'm into Greek mythology. I promise, just like Nick Cage, I won't add that every single episode. But I just hit my point. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so I was introduced mostly through some of the Greek plays and then teachers, you know, like, oh, you should also check out, you know, Old Will. And uh, I did. We read uh, Romeo and Juliet was the first one that I read. And the uh, I bite my thumb at you. That was probably my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very popular scene. Yes. <laughs> I think uh, one of the ones I, you know, I dabbled with it. I was always a reader. But like most people, I struggled with the language. Mm-hmm. And I saw Much Ado About Nothing, the one with Denzel Washington and Kenneth Branagh. Mm -hmm. And it was such a good presentation of that movie. And it really kind of clicked. I I think I should have realized this before, but it really clicked that, you know, what we read is a script Mm -hmm. and seeing it performed is what what gets people. And so seeing that performance, even when the language muddied me a little bit, I could see what was going on. And they did an outstanding job of that particular play. I thought that that cast. And so after that, it really uh, intrigued me a little bit more and I've done a little more reading and diving. I've read Macbeth probably three or four times, you know, even before that time I had read it, you know, and and still kind of struggled through the language, but enough that I was getting a grasp of the plot, you know. Now I'm much more comfortable with that kind of language, but there are times when I'm like, okay, based on context, biting the thumb is an insult, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, I I think seeing it performed really helps, especially because you have so much slapstick that's written in that you don't get when you're just reading words Very on true. a page. Yeah. And so kind of seeing the facial expressions and the movements, like that's what really helps you understand it. Yeah, I feel I'm, Shakespeare really gives zingers quite a lot. Oh, a lot, yes. <laughs> I'd like to follow up on that. When you said that your introduction to Shakespeare was in, you know, in school and literature mm-hmm. classes, and that's great, and it should be there. But reading the text, especially if you're struggling 
with the language is not the same as experiencing Shakespeare. True. No, the first time I saw uh, Midsummer Dream was here mm-hmm. in Evansville. One of the schools, well, I guess one of the universities was putting on a play of it. And that, because we had read it in class as well mm-hmm. before. So watching it being played out was a lot different because my brain suddenly made the connection of like, oh, Puck is just a manic pixie dream boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on page. That's a good way to put it. He's not coming across that way on page. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think the scene, it definitely makes a big difference. Well, there's there's so much physical comedy and, and physical violence mm-hmm. that goes on in Shakespeare. And if, if your mind is saying this word means this and this word means that, then you're not grasping the intensity what's of moving. what's happening. Yes, exactly. I taught theater for 18 years or so in um, Texas. I was a, a full-time theater teacher there. And I used to tell my students that, you know, Shakespeare is all about sex and violence. And uh, you think that um, it's boring. It's not. You just have to watch with a different part of your perception open to it. And then it becomes a whole different experience. Yeah, we read um, one of the books that we had for school was had the original text on one page and then a modern translation on the opposite page. Right. And that was really helpful, especially at that age, to figure out what they were actually saying. Right. Uh, no Fear Shakespeare books yeah, I think are, that was are very popular. And that's probably the most popular one. And it's it's pretty good for a translation. And it's handy to have it one page and opposite what the lines actually say, because you can look it up while you're going and you don't have to chase down a dictionary or a vocabulary sheet somewhere. I actually learned the phrase iambic pentameter from watching a moonlighting episode that did an adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. I remember that episode. I I think that literally, and I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I think that was literally my introduction to that play, even though they completely changed the ending, which by the way, I kind of liked their ending as opposed to the (laughs) original ending, only because, you know, modern times and all that. But in the ending, of course, of the original play, Kate has come to her senses and she's now a, a devoted and completely submissive wife. And uh, in the ending of Taming of the Shrew done by Moonlighting, that old TV series, uh, they, they didn't end it like that. You know, <laughs> he it actually he was the one who said, hey, if my wife speaks up and says that I said the sun is the moon and then she says, no, it's not. Then I'm going to look again and go, oh, wait, you're right. It's not. <laughs> and I liked that they made that shift, although Shakespeare would probably been appalled. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. There There is some disagreement on really? that. And quite possibly, you're right, he intended it that way because of the day and time that he wrote it. Right. But most most directors and theatricians today um, interpret it more like she bought into his game and the two of them are working together to, oh. play, the, to play the public. That, um, Interesting. This is really a bonding of the two of them, really making them more equal because they're playing the game together rather than he's just browbeating her. So More of a shared problem to overcome together rather than a battle of wills against each other. Uh, well, I don't think a problem. I think it's okay. their joke on the world at that point. I mean, I think they're having a good time with it. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, the concept is right. It's okay. just they don't see it as a problem. They see yeah. it as a, a way to have fun together. Yeah, yeah, I do know at the end of that one, she does have a speech mm-hmm. right? where she's like, oh, well, my husband controls me, but also because of that, I control him. Oh, and so there is. I need to reread that. Yeah, conclusion. Yeah. There's, there's room for interpretation there. It could be taken a lot of different ways, but yeah. Concerning, considering how often Shakespeare was tongue in cheek, I could definitely see yeah. that as a real possibility for that ending. Well, there's a lot of Shakespeare coming up in the in the not too distant future in uh, in Evansville. Um, USI is going to be doing Twelfth Night this spring. Oh, are they? 
And um, the Evansville Shakespeare Players just announced that they're doing Much Ado for the uh, summer Shakespeare show this at Bullard this year. So Exciting. So we've talked a little bit about modern interpretations of Shakespeare. What's everybody's favorite modern interpretation? Hmm. I like – now, I have to admit, I really like Patrick Stewart as an actor. Oh, he's and I've seen him both play Macbeth, uh, which I really, really like his version of Macbeth. Not, not just his role, although – definitely his role, but the whole movie I thought was really, really well done. And uh, I liked the way they did the three weird sisters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because of course, in the original play, they were cast as just three witches. And and of course, there's still witches in this one. It's moved forward to like a 1950s Romania kind of struggle type scenario. Um, but they're even though they kind of are still the witches, they're cloaked in other clothing, like they're nurses, but they're doing harm rather than good and things of that oh. nature. And I also liked him in King of Texas, which was an adaptation of King Lear. And he played the role of King Lear, of course. But I really, I like him in most roles. He, I think, trained as a Shakespearean actor. Yes, he was yeah. a Shakespearean actor long before he did Star Trek. Star Trek. And and I feel like that comes across when he plays in Star Trek, too. But I really enjoy the roles. But he's not the only Shakespearean actor I enjoy. But if I see him in a role in a Shakespearean movie, I'm going to go see it. You know, it's interesting. I just heard an interview on NPR within the last week or two with Patrick Stewart and they yeah. were asking him wasn't it strange for you as a Shakespearean actor to be asked to do Star Trek and he said yeah oh, I thought it was only going to be for a few episodes yeah <laughs> <laughs> changed his life <laughs> and ours and <laughs> All right, I'm a tricky, I confess. So. Yeah. Uh, my favorite adaptation is definitely the 2006 movie, She's the Man with Amanda Bynes. Good choice. Yeah. So has everyone here seen that one? I actually haven't. I have not. Okay, so it is based on Twelfth Night. And Laurie, you'll have to help me if I get any of the details wrong. Oh, it's been a while, but I will do my best. Uh, Amanda Bynes has a twin brother who has her take his place at Illyria boarding school. Mm-hmm. And... And um, her, she, she her, falls in love with her roommate. Yeah. Who doesn't know that she is who she is. She thinks, or he thinks he's her brother. Yeah. And um, this is all under the guise of like proving that girls are good at soccer hmm. because okay. her school is cutting their soccer team. And so she, her main goal is to become good enough to fight, or not fight, to, to play on the team. Good enough to play on the boys' team against her old school to prove that she's good. And yeah, she ends up falling in love with her brother's roommate, and he is trying to woo someone else, so she's kind of trying to help him at first, <laughs> but then that girl falls in love with her, thinking she's her brother, and all the classic ninth or Twelfth Night tropes. Yeah, and then her brother shows up earlier than he's supposed to, and there's the whole of, oh, is, are they going to find out what's going on? Yeah. yeah it's very Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah it, mm-hmm. it very much also plays up the, the cross-dressing trope that I know is in a lot of his lot, plays. Yes, uh-huh. That was that scene at the carnival where she has to constantly go back and forth between being herself and being her brother. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's just like running around all these carnival attractions, like trying to change her clothes all the time. And it's great. Well, because you mentioned the like gender bending and cross-dressing. Um, at the time that Shakespeare was writing, there weren't women actresses really. Were it was there. considered a scandal if there yeah, were any right. female actors. Right. So you would have males dressing up as the female characters. Correct, yeah. I would say that my favorite modern interpretation is probably Sons of Anarchy, which is just Hamlet. And I mean, if you've read or watched Hamlet and then watch all of Sons, like, it's so blatant. Yeah, everybody dies. That's <laughs> <basically how laughs> everybody dies. <laughs> 
That's Shakespeare's bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> spoilers for a TV show that ended years ago. <laughs> I mean, if you, you haven't it, seen it by now, yeah, once you hear it's based on Shakespeare, too. Yeah, which is it was interesting because Kurt Sutter, the man that produced, wrote all that Sons of Anarchy. He very much so started with the idea that, yeah, this is going to be Hamlet in a modern story. Mm-hmm. Um, but then towards the end of it, it got so heavy handed that he was kind of tired of it. And he was like, can <laughs> we figure out how to move away from Shakespeare a little bit? Mm-hmm. But it was a really good show. Never would have thought motorcycles and Shakespeare would go together. I find that a lot. A lot of times when somebody say, oh, such and such was based on this Shakespearean play, it might not, I might not have realized it in the moment. But as soon as someone says it, I go, oh, yeah, I can completely see that now. And I had the same experience recently with, I was looking up movie adaptations and I didn't realize, but now it makes perfect sense, that The Lion King was also based on Hamlet. Mm-hmm. The the uncle killing the father and taking over the kingdom and the whole nine yards. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's right there. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> uh, and so I find that's true a lot of times someone will mention a, a movie or a play and go oh that was actually based on this and I'm like oh yeah totally was wasn't it which to me says how translatable Shakespeare is no matter how long ago he wrote right well you what know? this situation is I mean motorcycles sure yep. you know yep. they're basically treated like horses like if you would have a knight hopping on the back of a horse and running mm-hmm. off to battle that's what they do they just hop, hop on, on their on. bike and yep. off to battle oh, one movie that fascinated me I'm not sure if you consider an adaptation but certainly Certainly heavily handed influence from Macbeth was Mystic River. Do you remember that movie in Boston about the, the man whose daughter was yes. murdered and they found yes. Her? Uh, very, very, his wife was very Lady Macbeth. And, wow. Uh, yeah. So go back and watch it now with that in mind. Because, I, I would have to yeah. because I've it's been a while. watched it mm-hmm. once, but I did not see that connection. I almost never watch a movie more than once, and I probably watched that one five times. So it, so high it praise. spoke to me. Yes, it definitely spoke to me. All right, this isn't an adaptation, but this is something that came to mind in a movie I saw recently, and maybe you can help me with this. I watched Cyrano. Oh, yeah. Ago. I haven't seen and it yet. Many of the scenes were very heavy Romeo and Juliet, mm. and I don't rem- I don't remember when I read Cyrano. It's a century ago, and probably close. <laughs> You've aged so well, so very well. <laughs> but I'm wondering if that was in the original book or if this was a production choice. Mm. Does anybody? I don't, I don't know. know. Well, I... When you watch it again, get back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the play itself was written in 1897. So that's considerably after Shakespeare's yeah. time. Yeah. All of this talk of modern interpretation and nobody has mentioned Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not one that came to mind, but please, please. <laughs> Just garden gnomes. <laughs> I feel like, you know, because there's certain plays that get done over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, Hamlet, Macbeth, and I think probably the most of all is Romeo and Juliet. That is just West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I mean, all of these different variations. Sometimes it's blatantly the play, like the Leonardo DiCaprio play. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like a spinoff, but it's still that concept. Which it's a great story. I would say now that I'm older, rethinking the story hits a little bit different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. Uh-huh. Maybe 13-year-olds shouldn't be making these life or death choices. <laughs> Just I maybe. mean, you know... <laughs> 
I do think that may have something to do with why it's the first Shakespeare play that so many teens read in school. Yeah. It feels very immediate when you read it at like 13 or 14. True. And you're like, True. oh my gosh, this is me. I yeah. feel I've these been things. so in love. Yes. <laughs> Who doesn't yes. remember being, you know, an early teenager and experiencing somebody that you think may be your first love and it mm-hmm. doesn't work out? And it's just, that's the end of the world. I have yeah. nothing to say about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't get married and die, you know, Hopefully. within a few yeah. days, yeah. you know, when you're 12, on a regular basis. <laughs> we try to avoid such things. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good plan. Maybe that's just a difference of time, though, and location. That's true. That's true. Well, we were talking about the parts for that one day and saying, okay, if this were cast true to the story, it would be very difficult, first of all, to find a 12-year-old that could play that. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Romeo is pushing 15, I believe. Mm. His mother, or her mother, would have been 20. 26. Yeah. We added up and it was like, you know, it's usually played by a 40-year-old with an 18-year-old daughter or something, you know, and it's just, it, it doesn't That's fit. That's not the way the math our, really works. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't fit our concept of age these days. Yeah. I also read somewhere once about Romeo and Juliet that the reason it's set in Italy mm-hmm. is so that the English people would kind of just accept that Juliet was so young. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, you know, oh, the wacky Italians. That's <laughs> yes. why they're doing all this. They did kind of looked down their nose on the Italians. You could get away with more if you set things in Italy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely see Shakespeare doing something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we'll just cast it as these guys and everybody will go, oh yeah, those guys. <laughs> yeah, well, right. that's, there's uh-huh. also like the Merchant of Venice. Yes, yeah, so I was Bello, thinking of that. All the other ones just set somewhere in Italy and it's just, mm-hmm. oh, you don't have to worry about it happening here. It's happening in Italy where yeah. those mm-hmm. weirdos are. <laughs> yes, exactly. too long ago, if I remember correctly, history-wise, please correct correct me if I'm wrong, but that wasn't too long after you had a bunch of issues with like the Medici's and those found fa- those founding families of Italy that created power structure issues. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can see that. So those kind of family fights were very at the forefront of their mind, I guess. That and the families were not exactly known for being wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good word. That's a good word. Specifically the Borgias and the Medici's. Uh, not, not good role models. No, no. Yeah, that does make the most sense. (laughs) Well, that was around the same time that The Prince was published as well, Mm. which may have been loosely based off of one of the Borgias. So of the different Shakespeare roles that you're familiar with, what's your what's your like favorite, not necessarily favorite good guy, just favorite most compelling character? I have a favorite bad guy. Okay, go for it. Great. Iago from Othello. Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah, that's definitely my favorite tragedy. And he's just so like all consumingly bad that I really enjoy his character. I feel the same way about Lady Macbeth. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, I don't like her or anything she represents, but her character is just fascinating to watch, especially the before and after of, oh, why are you such a pansy? (laughs) Just take care of it. And then being, you know, all the nightmares and trying to wash the hands of the blood that she just dismissed so easily before. I had an interesting experience with Lady Macbeth. I was directing some students and Uh we were doing Macbeth. And my Lady Macbeth came in one day and said, I'm pregnant. Oh, 
And I said, well, here's our choices. We find somebody else. We try to find a way to hide it because she would definitely be showing by production time. Or we use it. And we chose to use it. And we chose to make her pregnant. And there are some references in there that, you know, that perhaps she had a child who died, that Mm -hmm. she really wanted a child. And to have her pregnant and pleading with him to change his life and crying over the loss of her previous baby Mm -hmm. And his saying that he would have the son and then Macduff was going to have the son and he wouldn't have a son. And then when she died, instead of her just dying, we had her sword go through her abdomen. And it played so well. So next time you read Romeo and Juliet, I mean, not Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, think about, think about what, what if she was pregnant? What if her mental, um, razor blade Mm -hmm. was caused by the fact that she wanted so desperately to have this child and have him be healthy Mm. and that Macduff was winning in that battle as well? Wow. Wow. Fascinating. If I had to choose one, I'd probably say Ophelia. I'm a sucker for the the dramatic. <laughs> She'd be fun. She's so crazy. <laughs> You'd be a lot of fun to hang out with. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> in small doses. In small doses. Yes, in small yes. doses. But also, I think that, I mean, just to get to know me a little bit more for the listeners, I have had some issues with, like, depression in my past. Um, So to see a character that is so known for that and to see that she is still, like, loved and appreciated as a character all these years later, like, that is, that's reassuring in its weird way. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way before. That's great. Well, you mentioned Iago. Did you see Othello when they did it here about a month or two ago? Uh, I did not see it here, no. Well, it's, it was, I think it was one of their best shows. It was really a good one. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough, a tough play. There's a yeah. lot going on with that. Um, well, my favorite role that I've ever played probably was the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. She's just mm. so much fun and, and touching emotionally, but playful. And there's so many jokes that can be played with and around her and from her. And, <laughs> and yet, you know, she's, she's Juliet's rock. She's what makes talking about the 12 year old sensibility. She's the one that that gets that there's a 12-year-old sensibility and tries to help her make sense out of it, and I Mm -hmm. love that. But I love the wild, crazy people, too. Yeah, yeah, they're... They're the best. Obviously, Shakespeare is well known for the large amount of words he's introduced to the English dictionary or library, whatever you want to call it. Um, So he introduced a lot of words. But I had read a while back that it may not have been a situation where he had actually invented those words, but just that he was the first person to put them on paper. So we had evidence of them. So he was drawing from things that were commonly said. Yes. But there was no written documentation other than his. That was the idea. I'm sure he probably did still invent a lot of new words. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, I mean, he's got so many words that are accredited to him. But I just thought that was interesting. And I bet it's probably fairly true because how many words if it weren't for texting would we say in our everyday (laughs) life? Yes. Yes. That you would never see. Does texting increase your vocabulary? <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say it increases it. Well, actually, technically speaking, yes. But it's different words. Changes it. Yeah. yeah. Makes it more concise. Yes. Because you can have three characters of LOL, which conver- conveys a whole idea of, like, you're making me laugh with your humor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
So speaking of words and phrases that Shakespeare used, I do have a list here of uh, phrases that are considered invented by him. Mm -hmm. If you guys want to take stab at guessing which play they come from. Okay, I'll try. Okay, so the first You're going to have an unfair advantage, Sharon. I don't know that I am. I'm thinking, (laughs) thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this looks like something I should know, and maybe I won't. (laughs) Some of them I think are like pretty easy, and some of them are a little bit harder. So I think there's some good variety in here. Okay. Uh, the first one, Wild Goose Chase. Hmm. Oh, I just read that too. I mean, I was reading a list like this. Mm-hmm. <sighs> nope, nope, I don't have it. <laughs> uh, Romeo and Juliet, and it specifically comes from Act 2, Scene 4. Uh, nay, if our wits run the wild goose chase, I am done. Okay. Oh. All right. All right. I was taking it more literally. Chasing your wits is something completely different. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. uh, Mercutio says that. Okay. okay. Uh, number two, the green-eyed monster. Oh, is that from Much Ado About Nothing? No. Oh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> it's one of the tragedies. Okay. Okay. I cheated and Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> What did you see on your Google? It is Iago <laughs> that says that. Okay. My favorite okay. Villain. All right. Okay. All right. Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster of with jo- which doth mock the meat it feeds on. It yes. would That's- make sense that it was in that play. Yeah. Yeah. super metal, actually. Yeah, and it's <laughs> super metal. I love that. <laughs> it's from him, like, trying to goad uh, Othello into being jealous, actually. Right. He's being like, oh, watch out. And it's like, but actually, yes. let's keep this going. I think that would be a good idea, though, just a heavy metal band that just soliloquies from Shakespeare's plays. Oh. I would listen. I <laughs> I would love that. I think that would be great. It's a free idea for any listeners. Mm-hmm. All right, all metal musicians. Uh, it's all Greek to me. When is St. Julius Caesar? Yes. I really thought I would be better at this. <laughs> um, Julius Caesar. I'm really glad I got one. <laughs> Act one, scene two. Nay, and I tell you that I'll ne'er look you in the face again. But those that understood him smiled at one another and shook their heads. But for mine own part, it was all Greek to me. Mm. The game is afoot. No way. That came from Shakespeare. Yes. This ah. is another one from a history. Wow. Okay. One of the Richards. No. Oh, okay. Mm. From a history. Anthony and Cleopatra. No. <laughs> <laughs> throwing names out there at this point <laughs> which one but that's interesting is that considered a history or is that a i think that's considered a tragedy mm. but it's sort of i mean it's it absolutely historic yeah, yeah. A little yeah. yeah. An interesting question so what is which it? means we're dodging yeah <laughs> we give up uh, the game is afoot comes from henry the fifth act three scene one the game is afoot follow your spirit and upon this charge cry god for harry england and saint george so when you said Richards, you were close. You should have gone yes. with the Henrys. I just associate it with Sherlock Holmes and BBC. Exactly. Yeah, which, exactly. <laughs> which also, that does make sense because Sherlock is seen as like this very intelligent, calculating man. So, mm-hmm. of course, he would be someone who read some Shakespeare. Yeah. Yes, of course. All of them, no doubt. Whether he could remember what he read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one I think you all can get. Uh, something Wicked This Way Comes. That's Macbeth. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. Witches. Yes. Yep. Right. Which they are also very compelling characters for me. Yes. Besides. I have played them too. They're fun. Uh, I would totally you know play else? those. I'm sorry. This is off this episode. You know who else I played one time was the grave digger. Ooh. For. That was in, in, um, in Macbeth when oh, I was in uh-huh. the, 
when he holds up the skull mm-hmm. the last Iago, I mean, the last year. Yorick. Yorick. I oh, mean you mean well. you mean Hamlet. In Hamlet. Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant Hamlet. <laughs> yeah. So all this talk about Shakespeare, though, and uh, like the historical ones especially, nobody's mentioned David Tennant yet either. Mm. Oh. Wait, did David Tennant play some Shakespeare? Yes. Yeah. I am not yeah, aware of this. He did Hamlet. Yes. And he also did uh, I'm gonna have to hunt that up mm-hmm. with Catherine Tate. Okay, I will have so you to have watch this. I I really like. I already mentioned Patrick Stewart, and I really, really, really like Kenneth Branagh. He's definitely mm-hmm. been a hook because he played, of course, in that Much Ado About Nothing movie, and he's got a real love of Shakespeare. Although he plays other roles as well, and so, but I did not know David Tennant had played a role. I will definitely look for those. Yes, he's actually. It looks like a Shakespearean actor from the beginning. Yeah, because um, he was in Romeo and Juliet in. As You Like It, um, in Comedy of Errors. Like, wow. It looks like he's been in quite a few of them. I'm really surprised that I didn't know that because I really like him as an actor. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I will, you know, definitely find movies that are associated with a favorite actor like Patrick Stewart. So I will. I'm going to have to do a deep dive. I don't like him in Jessica Jones because I like him too much to like him as that guy. Oh, he's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> he's such a good bad guy. I know. I'm not saying he's not a good actor. I just hate seeing him like that because I like him so much. Okay, so David Tennant was in a stage production of Much Ado About Nothing, which is one of my favorite comedies. Right. Partially because of him in this version. What role did he play in that one? Uh, Benedict. Oh, okay, oh, yes. I he, he definitely need to role. watch that. And then Catherine Tate, who played Donna Noble in Doctor Who, uh-huh. uh, plays the main girl whose name I, I can't remember. Uh, Hero? No, Hero no, no, is no, no, like... No. Uh, um, it's a, it's a B. Uh, Beatrice. 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 Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's... Them two playing this like romantic. I must watch that. And it's one of the productions. They have a spinning stage that they do everything on, and there are like a lot of great gags with them just dealing with that. It's so good. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna look and see if we have it downstairs before I leave today. <laughs> <laughs> so I was gonna throw out a question, and if this goes nowhere, it's fine. But um, I was gonna throw out a question. We talked about how like Macbeth and Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet get played over and over. And over by is there a play and i'll especially ask you this sharon that you feel like should have been made into a movie that has just not really gotten the recognition that those other repeats have gotten i don't know if there's a play that hasn't been made into a movie if there is it's probably the histories the histories tend to get neglected the most mm-hmm. it seems like especially like his greek histories is what i'm looking at here uh, like Timon of Athens. Never even heard of that until right. today. Right. I, I would yeah, the tragedies are done a lot. That, and there's like five of them that are done most often. Mm. The, the comedies are done a lot. Um, but the histories are few and far between. No, Titus Andronicus is not super It's common. not done much. They did do it here about four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. The Evansville Shakespeare players did it. And it was a lot of fun because of all the blood <laughs> prints that they had to come up with. If a horror reader yes, was to it's a be introduced movie. to uh-huh. yeah, Shakespeare. <laughs> right. Well, I know Troilus and Cressida doesn't usually get it's a true. ton of play. Because mm-hmm. that one's real intense. Yes. Neither does his Pericles either. So I don't know that I've ever seen a movie of that. 
I don't think so. I was also going to mention, there's some interesting superstitions around Shakespeare plays, especially one in particular. Yes. (laughs) We're not in a theater, so we're safe. 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 (laughs) You can shout it from the rooftops. Yes. So. Have you had any experience with the curse? Yes. (laughs) Oh. All right. So for those who don't know, the curse is you never say Macbeth at a movie theater. Is that correct? Uh, Or when it's been. A live theater. Yes. Not a movie theater. Yeah. Oh, did I say movie yeah. theater? I meant just a live theater. Yes. So don't say Macbeth in a theater where it brings bad luck. Is that the that's gist of it? absolutely true. Um, and if it's, you know, part of the production, I mean, that's okay, but you can't say it otherwise. There's some theory that some of the witch's lines are actual spells. Spells. Okay. All right. That, and so because of that, it brings forth bad luck, bad energies mm-hmm. to the place where you are. That's the best history I can give you on it. I don't know that I have ever known anyone who did a production that didn't have some kind of a bad experience. I had an experience, and this is sort of a true confessions thing. I was working with students, and we were doing Macbeth, and in in the scene where Lady Macduff is killed, where mm-hmm. the, the bandits come in, and they mm-hmm. surround her, and they kill her, and they run away. Mm-hmm. I had ordered these blunt daggers that never made it in time because there were problems with shipping. Mm-hmm. So I went to Walmart and I got a fishing knife and I and I Dulled sanded it. down everything and I put wax on it and everything. But there was already a plastic tip on the end. So mm-hmm. I just left that there. In the dark, as the actors are running out, the one of the bandits had pulled this dagger out and knocked the tip off. Oh, oh no. Didn't know it. And they were running in the dark. <gasps> and one of my actors got her arm. A nice slice. Oh, yes. dear. We also had things in that same production of the soundboard jumping off the table for no apparent reason. Interesting. Uh, the gong falling off the wall. I mean, you know, thing, things happen. Uh, I've been in, I've known of productions where one of the flats just fell for no reason. The flats mm. are the big separate um, parts of the backdrop right. mm-hmm. that they build the walls out of that one just, I mean, you know, I hear things like this all the time. I don't know whether we go back and say, oh, that must have been because it was Macbeth and someone said it, but there's enough of those that those of us who are in the theater kind of take that a curse little a little seriously. Yeah. Yes, we do. So I'm a bit of a skeptic. Mm-hmm. I, it's very much a, a I want to believe mm-hmm. scenario, but... <laughs> I'm a bit of a skeptic. So I got to ask, like, are these issues that also happen with other plays that you put on? And maybe it's just being attributed to the idea of the curse? Well, I believe that that could be possible. It just really seems to be more and worse. Okay. That's my experience. Am I doing it in my head subconsciously? Maybe a little bit, but I don't know. It's uh, (laughs) pretty compelling. (laughs) I noticed, I mean, it's a thing that just carries, even Hamilton recently made reference to that, that it was a part of the play where they were, he was exchanging letters with Angelica and he talks about the Scottish play to avoid saying the name. Right. Because, of course, it was all set in Scotland, Macbeth. But I remember hearing that in Hamilton and, and just kind of chuckling a little bit because they're in theater. Mm-hmm. And they're performing this different play, and they don't want to say that, so they throw in a famous Scottish play. Right. <laughs> so I've pulled up some information from the Royal Shakespeare Company in England, mm-hmm. and 
there is an official way to break the curse if you do happen oh. to say Macbeth when you're in a theater. Do you guys know what it is? No. Turn around counterclockwise three times. Close. Uh, there's a bit more to it than that. You have to exit the theater, spin around three times, spit, curse, and then you have to knock on the theater door and be given permission to come back. <laughs> That's just a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That one sounds a little contrived to me. <laughs> Take some salt with you while you're at it. Yeah, you know, awesome. Yeah, just cover all your bases. Yes, and none of the rest of it is contrived, of course. That's all there is. Certainly not. Certainly not. Well, of course, if I believe it, it's not contrived. But if you believe it, mm-hmm. then... Then it is. Yeah. yeah. You're right. True, true. So a couple of years ago, there was a film that you may or may not be familiar with. And this is not a Shakespeare film, but it is leading into a Shakespeare thing uh, <laughs> called She Rock. Has anybody else seen that? No. Spike Lee. Okay. So basically, it was a modern day interpretation of the Greek tragedy Lysistrata. Lysistrata? Mm-hmm. Lysistrata. Yes, excuse me. Um that was it's taking place in modern day Chicago with modern day problems. And I want to see a Shakespeare version of that so badly. Mm. I want to see a film where everybody is speaking in modern language, dressed modern, going through the same issues that we would deal with, but has a fundamentally Shakespeare story. Mm. West Side Story. Yeah. True, but that's a musical, isn't it? It is. I struggle with musicals. I, I do want too. to. <laughs> I want to like them. I really do. I won't go into that. That'll go down. <laughs> I, There's so much I want to say. But I, I actually won't. like the opposite of what you're describing. I like it when they reset these plays in modern times, but they keep the original language. So you were a fan of the Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Those kind of things. And also the Macbeth I mentioned earlier with Patrick Stewart, because it wasn't set in the original time period. It was set in like 1950s Romania-esque kind of feel. And so it was more modern, but it was still that original language. And I really, I don't know what that juxtaposition in my brain does, but that's when I really enjoyed it. It takes it out of the past, but still keeps that language. And I just find that very interesting. I think the Leonardo DiCaprio version was interesting to me when I first saw it. I thought, oh, what did they do? They ruined it. No. <laughs> and then I, w- I was teaching high school theater at the time. And I so we watched it several times because we watched it in class when we were studying the different ideas behind Shakespeare. And the more I watched it, the more I appreciated it. And I think mm-hmm. it's so clever. Mm-hmm. It's so inventive the mm-hmm. way they took these ideas and these concepts and even some of the words mm-hmm. and made them work. And I ended up a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I remember seeing that version for the first time when I was a teenager and being so impressed that uh, the guns they use in all their fights all say sword. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of a stretch, but it worked and it was clever. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So we've covered a lot of stuff about Shakespeare's works, but I do have some fun facts here about Shakespeare as a man. If you guys are interested in that. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Did you guys know, uh, we're starting at the end here, uh, Shakespeare only left one thing to his wife in his will. The second best. I heard of that. And I I was like, what was that about? I've never really heard or found out if there is any more to it. Yeah, I I couldn't find anything else either. Just that that's what was in the will. (laughs) I could be remembering incorrectly because it has been quite a while since high school. But I do seem to remember 
remember one of our teachers telling us that Shakespeare didn't actually live with his wife, that they had gotten married and they lived in two different cities um, and didn't particularly get along. Well, I I haven't heard it said that they didn't get along, but they didn't live together for a very long time. So I think it's probably (laughs) It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. When he left, of course, he was born in Barrack-upon-Tweed, and you probably learned that in school. And then he went with this troop of people and he went to London and that's where he did all of his body of work and he retired and went back to Berk upon Tweed just a few years before he died. But he lived with his wife when he went back. So I, I, it kind of seems fitting that, well, you know, she was still his wife, but she was kind of second best. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it sort of seems to fit. <laughs> and she was much older than him. Also, his wife's name is Anne Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Yes. So is she a vampire or are we just going to go with different Anne Hathaways? <laughs> I've seen that argument made a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've never seen anything that definitively proves that our Anne Hathaway today is the same one. We've never seen them in the same room at the same time. That would be true. difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Shakespeare only had one son. His name was Hamnet. Hamnet, yes. He had three kids, though, and Hamnet died. Mm, okay. And I don't know, that might have had something to do with their problems. Mm-hmm. Although I really think they were more self-indulgent in wanting to, to write and act and, and live that life. But, you know, that, that puts a strain on him. He was pretty young when he died, but they, yeah. he was a twin. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't and know that. And then there was another daughter. There was well, a Suzanne, Susan, Suzanne. Susanna and Judith, I believe. Judith, okay. Um, because also it says here uh, that when he met his wife, Anne Hathaway, the vampire, he was, <laughs> <laughs> he was 18 and she was 26 and she was three months pregnant with his child when they got married. Right. Okay. So Susanna was born six months after their wedding, which makes me question too, is, did they actually get along or was this just kind of a shotgun wedding? Yeah. Yes. Drawn it, wedding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> shotgun, but only shotguns called sword. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I could well, definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. It was the time period. If you yeah. got somebody pregnant, like you pretty much had to marry them. Yes. So yeah, it makes sense. A lot of tro- he got in a lot of trouble in his town, too. He wasn't known as a, an exemplary citizen. Yeah. <laughs> that was my read of him. I, I have another fact that relates to his troublemaking ways, which is that he may have been threatened with jail time for tax evasion. Oh. Hmm. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> now, I heard he was threatened with jail time for poaching a deer on the king's property. Also a big no-no. Yes, but his father had a glove factory. Hmm. And I heard something about taxes with him, I believe. So, hmm. you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> <laughs> he probably learned it at his, do- at his mm-hmm. father's hand. Interesting. Well, there is also, I do know one off the top of my head, that he not only cursed Macbeth, mm-hmm. uh, but he also cursed his grave to the point that like nobody will touch it to this day. Yes, I have hmm. the I've exact never heard lines that one. here that oh. he has written above his grave. Okay. Good friend for Jesus, sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones and cursed be he that moves my bones. Ooh. Mm. That's that's a pretty good line right there. He's king tutted himself. Yeah. <laughs> he's king tutted himself. And he's, he's done a proper job of it because yeah. <laughs> King Tut was disturbed. He was, yes. I mean, people died, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have died since then, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. In the actual... Uh, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm <laughs> So, yeah. And I have one more fun fact. Uh, he is the reason starlings are in America. Yes. Okay. Explain that. I don't know that Okay. One. 
So there was some guy who thought it would be an excellent idea to bring every bird that is mentioned in Shakespeare's play <laughs> and release them in Central Park. That sounds and like it, it would be kind of the sanctuary of like you know very literary, literary uh, impressiveness. I see. And oh, look at how great America is! We can just take things from England, kind of thing. I think. Uh-huh. So in 1890, 60 sterlings were released in uh, Central Park, and today the U.S. is home to an estimated 200 million. Wow. Wow. And they are a giant pest and they cause all kinds of issues and basically no one wants them here anymore. It's one of those, it sounded like a good idea at the time kind of <laughs> moments. Which, okay, so you said earlier you're a Trekkie. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but there are two Shakespeare plays, Hamlet and Much Ado About Nothing, that have been translated to Klingon. I know there are definitely Klingon translations. <laughs> I have not yet taken up that language study. <laughs> <laughs> I could give you a few phrases. Of, the you know, look but... of utter horror on Sharon's face when you said that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I could have. <laughs> But it probably fits. (laughs) Well, Gene Roddenberry, who started the the whole Star Trek, uh, he was really big into Shakespeare. And that would definitely play into the original series. I mean, yes, the original series is dated and they have very limited budget for effects. So there's always that. But a lot of the plots were very Shakespearean feeling. And there was at least one episode that was basically an actor who he had reinvented himself. He had been really guilty of a war crime and disappeared and reinvented himself as this Shakespearean actor that traveled around and did plays. And so that one was like very in your face Shakespeare because he was playing these roles. But the backstory behind it was also very tragic and Shakespearean. I'm trying to remember the name of the episode, but I can't. But it's definitely, for anybody who likes Shakespeare, worth a watch. But Mm -hmm. if you know that Gene Roddenberry had a very Shakespearean mindset and you watch those original episodes, you can definitely see that coming through. Did you know that Shakespeare is purported to have died on his birthday? I've heard that. I don't know anything. Well, he was born presumably on April 23rd and they got that by his, because they didn't have birth certificates, but they got that by his uh, baptismal record and generally you're baptized three days after you're born. He returned home to Barakapantweed, and I don't remember exactly, but maybe three to five years before he died. And the story goes that he, that some of his pack from London <laughs> came to help him celebrate his birthday, and they spent days on a long drunk, and his body couldn't take it, and he died. Mm-hmm. So he died from over-partying. Oh. I'm imagining just like a 1500s rat pack, basically. <laughs> right, uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's what they did. They sat around in the taverns, and they shared mm-hmm. stories, and of yeah. course there was Christopher Marlowe, and he got killed in a bar fight and you know i mean that was sort of their the jacobian version of frank sinatra just in the corner right (laughs) (laughs) we act like the wild and different partying kind of lives of our current celebrities are unique but that's just kind of been going on since the dawn of time (laughs) long time cavemen even The performers would go off and, you know, drink. Who knows what? (laughs) Well, I'd also heard that there is no, well, it's been codified now, but at one point there were so many different ways to spell Shakespeare that we don't actually know the correct way. Yes. I heard that he didn't even spell it the same way every time he wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, The English language didn't get codified until quite a bit later spelling wise. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and sort of on that subject, most of his plays really were not put together until after he died because he would just say, oh, well, here's some lines for you and here's some lines for you and here's some lines for you. Go do it. Yeah. You know, and then they would, they, they had to get together later wow. to put the folios together. Can you imagine that kind of a project, having to get all the lines from the same plate so that you could put them together? Isn't there some contention even then because the different folios that record the same plays like have different lines? Well. Well, and that wouldn't be surprising at all. But you know, you, you got a question when you when you take a Shakespearean script and you look at iambic pentameter versus the lines that are done in prose. That says something about the characters. Mm-hmm. It says something about the way they are to be read, whether they stop in the middle of the line or they finish the pentameter. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's stage direction written in the way the lines are that the people say. Interesting. I mean. I mean, the detail and the level of information when you take apart a Shakespearean script is phenomenal. It's beyond what a human mind should be able to do. And to be able to recreate that later from pieces that you find and put it together in a, in a salient document is just about, I mean, it's so incredible that it's just about almost unbelievable. So that there would be differences makes a whole lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a question for you. Yes. I'm going to throw gas on a fire. No, not really. <laughs> How do you feel after dedicating so much of your life to Shakespeare about the conspiracy theory that Shakespeare did not actually write all of his plays? Oh, they're just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Please tell me more. (laughs) No, I I just, I mean, I understand where it comes from, you know, that people want to say, well, yes, but look at this and look at that. And he never went to Italy. How could he write about Italy? Well, we've already talked about reasons he might have written about Italy and he knows people that went to Italy. And the basis for that, I think, is is just not strong enough to really say, no, this man who wrote these great works is not the same man who wrote these other great works that are similar to those great works that, I mean, I, I don't know. To me, yes, I take personal offense. <laughs> I just I just think that, you know, leave it alone. You're, yeah. you're just doing that because it would be fun to do, I think. <laughs> well, one thing that I had always wondered, and I could be off base here, but mm-hmm. I'm assuming at that time, period for his socioeconomic station in life, mm-hmm. there probably wasn't a whole lot of literacy around him um, in that most people just probably couldn't really read. Right. So in order to say, oh, yeah, this one person that does know how to read in this entire group of people didn't write this just seems a little off to me. Yeah, I, I think that's probably pretty valid. I think, you know, his his um, rat pack, probably the, <laughs> the literate group that hung around and used each other's plots and, and right. Greek plots mm-hmm. and and, you know, folklore plots. And yeah, like Lord Byron and Mary Shelley. Just, just a group. Played with them. Right, yeah. Right, and right. and uh, got together. I, I think, you know, could Christopher Marlowe have written some of it because they were so close? Yeah, maybe. But he wrote his own plays. Why would he do that? You know, that was one of the theories. Um, I don't know. I, I just. Now, I'm not very familiar with Christopher Marlowe. What kind of plays does he do? Um, well, he was a contemporary. He wrote similar kinds of plays. But I don't, I don't really think his were as in-depth. I mean, mm. at, at the levels of symbolism and understanding. But he was actually more popular than Shakespeare. Okay. He was, oh, he yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. He wrote Faustus. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But he died pretty young. His it, hair looks wild on Google. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to jump in here because I came up with the name of that Star Trek episode I was mentioning that's kind of a Shakespeare play within a Shakespeare play, and it's called The Conscience of the King. And so if anybody wants to see a Shakespeare within a Shakespeare within a Star Trek episode, you should go look that up. It's the original series, not the newer versions. But can you find that in Klingon? I mean, there are people who are devoted much more than I am, as much as I enjoy it. So I would not at all be surprised. This is probably such an out there reference. Has anybody else watched the Star Wars holiday special? Yeah. Once. There's a scene where Chewbacca's family is having a little domestic scene where they're just like cooking lunch and having a conversation in their language. I don't even know what species Chewbacca is. Wookiee. Um, Wookie. Excuse me. Thank you. Uh, speaking in Wookiee language, and there's absolutely no subtitles for the yeah. entire scene. It's like it's a long <laughs> scene. It's a- Ten minutes long. Yeah. And they're just <laughs> Wookiee talking. Yeah. And you have zero idea what's going on. And I just, I'm getting this mental image of watching a Shakespearean play in Klingon being pretty much exactly like that. She's like, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> so you brought up Shakespeare, I mean, Star Wars. Yes. There are volumes, and we have them on the shelves here, mm-hmm. of the Star Wars movies put into Shakespearean language. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's iambic pentameter. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've read, I haven't read all of them, but I've read a couple of them. And those are just so much fun to read because, of course, you already know the movie. At least if you've ever watched Star Wars, you know the movie. So reading through it in that Shakespearean language, that iambic pentameter, it's just so much fun to read. I gave my daughter a set of those for Christmas one year because we're nerdy like that. And she <laughs> loved them. So, in fact, I think the first one, not, not, not in order, you know, there's the when they were released. But, you know, but the first one that was... The the first Star Wars movie was called A New that was released, sorry, was called A New Hope. And so the book on the shelves is Verily A New Hope. And <laughs> and then the entire thing is done in that. I love it so much. There's another book that we have in the system, or at least we did at one point, called Much Ado About Mean Girls. Which oh. is the Mean Girls movie in uh Shakespearean style. <laughs> I could see that doing pretty well. Regina George would fit right in. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Some other Shakespeare-related productions, uh, Something Rotten, which was written in 2015 and did win a number of awards. It was on Broadway for a while, um, which that plays on the story that someone else wrote Shakespeare's plays. Well, also, okay, I'm going to jump back real quick. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. The same author that wrote those Star Wars Shakespeare's yes. is the same one that wrote the Mean Girl Shakespeare and Get the Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I might have to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what were you saying? Anyway, uh, Something Rotten, which is a musical based on the idea that someone else wrote Shakespeare's works. And it's very fun. I've not seen the full show, but there have been, you know, clips on like morning shows and and uh, at the Arts at the White House kind of exhibits, they've had people go there and perform some of these. And one, my favorite thing about it is that Shakespeare is presented very much as like a modern rock star. So like all in leather, heavy eyeliner, <laughs> like drunken swagger. I can see it. It's so <laughs> Um, and his his main song is him singing about how hard his life is, and so he's going to steal someone else's work, and it's a, a good show. Sounds uh, fun. And there's also um, a good introduction to Shakespeare, if you need one, 
is the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged. Have you guys ever seen that? Yes. Uh Okay. It's a group in the 90s, and it's these three guys who just, in about an hour and a half, cover every single one of Shakespeare's plays. In fact, I think Civic did that in the last couple of years. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's really absurd, and they really play up the slapstick nature of it, and it's it's so fast. And that's one of my uh, main reasons that Othello is my favorite tragedy, because their bit <laughs> talking about Othello is like a rap. <laughs> and they're like, here's a story about a brother by the name of Othello. He likes white women, and he likes green jello. <laughs> just the whole show is stuff like that, where it clearly really does not fit, but somehow conveys exactly what you need to know about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I've also just discovered that there is a wishbone episode called Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely seen that one. I love wishbone. Well, if we're talking about movies, I have to mention Shakespeare in Love. Mm. Yes. First time I saw it, I thought, eh. and then I watched it again and again. That was one of those. The details in that are so historically accurate. And the mm. more you watch it, the more you can pick up. You might probably wouldn't notice most of the time, you know, if you're just watching it. But they'll be walking down the street and there'll be just some people walking behind them. And you hear them talking to each other and they'll be throwing out a line from Shakespeare. Mm. And and he goes, okay. <laughs> Zing, I'm going to use that one in a play. Um, you know, and then the, just the... The, the details and the um, historical accuracy in a strange sort of way for an inaccurate, you know, mm-hmm. fiction is to me amazing. You were talking a little bit at one point about how wordy Shakespeare is, and there's some interesting history behind that as well. Mm-hmm. His earlier plays are not so wordy. His later plays are very wordy. Queen Victoria didn't like them so wordy. She liked mm-hmm. the fun and the and mm-hmm. the, the rowdiness and all of that sort of thing. But when King James came along, he loved the words. Oh, I can and see that. So Shakespeare's that plays became much more wordy. I have found that in a lot of those long speeches, if you just read like the first two sentences, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a way to like maintain that money from the crown. Well, yeah, I mean, they you know he had to please the crown so that mm-hmm. he would be allowed to continue producing. And there's even and you know don't stone me. This isn't my theory, but there's even some suggestion that the King James version of the Bible. Mm-hmm. When he would have, King James would have gathered his best writers around to help him with the rewrite, that Shakespeare might have had a hand in that. Oh. Interesting. I was wondering if he was the King well, James Well, the language, the of course, is very much the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so- it, it is. I mean, you can you can kind of see it in there. There's some influence. So, I don't know. Food for thought. Yeah. <laughs> there be have been internet conspiracy theories that there are references to Shakespeare and the King James Bible. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And it, it would make well, sense logically yeah, and historically. If it was written around the time of Shakespeare mm-hmm. plays being performed, mm-hmm. you know, I could see them using those lines that these kind of phrases work their way into the normal everyday language. You know, we have Shakespearean phrases today that we use all the time, as you were reading earlier. But I mean, we also have movie lines that are stuck in our head, which of course I'm going blank on right now, that in a certain conversation, we'd throw that out and everybody would know what we meant. Right. Just like back in the day. So I could see that and happening. it would make perfect sense yeah. that the king would gather together his right. best writers of the day. Right, exactly. And say, help me word this, like this is what I wanted to, you know. Right, So exactly. do you know in that time period if there was ever a phenomenon of 
one of Shakespeare's plays getting real big in London at the Globe and then knockoff versions happening throughout the rest of the country? I don't. That's an interesting question because it would be perfectly normal in those times to steal somebody else's plot. Copyrights so. weren't really a thing back no, it then. Didn't exist no. <laughs> <laughs> but for someone to say, oh, I can't. of course, his plots were not his plots either, which is, you know, I guess anybody could have used the plots because true, he did. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking because, you know, now if you have see a kid's movie come out that's a big name, you know, two months later, you're going to see some like weird knockoff version where the animation is even the same, basically, mm-hmm. yeah. um, just cheaper. Uh, <laughs> so I was just curious if there was a Shakespeare version of that. Interesting thought. Yeah. Don't yeah. know. So the only other thing I was thinking of mentioning is there was a, a project uh, called the Hogarth Shakespeare Project, where current well-known authors took upon themselves to write a spinoff, if you will, mm-hmm. of a Shakespearean play. And so the titles that were written were The Gap of Time by Jeanette Winterson, was based on The Winter's Tale. Shylock is My Name by Howard Jacobson, of course, based on The Merchant of Venice. Vinegar Girl by Ann Tyler, based on The Taming of the Shrew. Hagseed by Margaret Atwood, based on The Tempest. Macbeth by Joe Nesbo. And in this one, I mean, it's Macbeth, but it's set with an Inspector Macbeth, who is a cop dealing with basically this drug trade, but he's also got his own troubled history. I've heard that one is very, like, noir detective. Okay. All right. These are all ones I would read. Uh, There's Dunbar by Edward St. Abin, which is based on King Lear, and then New Boy by Tracy Chevalier, uh, based on Othello. Is Tracy Chevalier a musician? She's the one that wrote The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Oh. But I don't know. Maybe she's also a musician. I read that. No, I'm thinking of Tracy Chapman. I was, <laughs> that's who I thought when you said that. I'm like, are we thinking Tracy Chapman here? Yeah. But so, so yes, uh, Tracy Chevalier wrote The Girl with the Pearl Earring, among right. others. And so she wrote that spinoff of Othello as well. So these are all books I would definitely pick up. And yeah, they're all very modern. Uh, right. Maybe not necessarily in the content, but the writing style is very, very right. modern. Right. Yeah. Not written in that Shakespearean style, mm-hmm. but I, I like exploring it through a new lens the the same you know but it's like my name is shylock for example the merchant of venice this is the bad guy in the mer- right. and so it'd be interesting to go how are they're coming at it uh, clearly from his point of view or at least the title so suggests that are we going to get a gritty shakespeare reboot uh, you know there's maybe. always a gritty shakespeare reboot. i think there should be i think there should be <laughs> all right Zack snyder get on it <laughs> Well, I have something in our current culture that you might not know came from Shakespeare. Knock-knock jokes. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, tell us more. Yes, the the gatekeeper Okay. in um, Macbeth at the end. And uh-huh. He's drunk and he's, remember him? And he, oh, right. Well, the guy's at the gate and he's yelling, knock-knock, wait a minute, wait a minute, knock-knock. And that was, that was kind of the original version of the knock-knock jokes when this person at the gate is trying to wake up this drunk who's yelling back, knock-knock. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great mix somewhere in there about a knock-knock joke and a who's-on-first joke. Uh, just quite haven't put them together yet. Oh, challenge to all comedians. <laughs> 
So Sharon is uh, the person, uh, she and I are going to be holding an event at McCullough on April 16th. We're calling it Talk Like Shakespeare. Um, we were originally going to hold it on the 23rd, which of course is his, his birthday, birthday and, pos- and his day of death. But unfortunately, there was a conflict. So we moved it a week earlier. But we're going to have some professional Shakespearean actors coming in. And we're going to have just some activities, some little scenes dis- demonstrated. There'll be displays. There's going to be some scenes, activities, maybe teaching you how to say common phrases in Shakespeare, like, how would Shakespeare say, dude, where's my car? You know, uh, we'll, we'll come up with things like that. And so I hope everybody will make it out. It's uh, from one to four on April 16th. So uh, if you need more information on that, give the library a call and we can fill you in. Should be a lot of fun and you might even learn something. <laughs> If you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, there will be a teen poetry workshop down at Central from 3.30 to 5. So that's pretty fitting for this. Yeah. April is Poetry Month. Mm -hmm. The first Thursday of the month at Red Bank, you can always come see me at a program that I run with a coworker named Cassidy called Knots and Needles, where you just bring in whatever fiber arts you're working on. If you're sewing something, knitting something, whatever, just come hang out with us while you work on it. Tuesday the 5th, we have the Great Library Baking Competition, also at Central, uh, from 6 p.m. to 7.30. We need a nailed-it-style version of that. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a wedding cake. You have an hour. Figure it out. Are you fun? (laughs) I like the versions where they go, here's your five very weird ingredients. Make something. Yeah. (laughs) We also have Computer Basics at Central on Wednesday the 6th. Uh, That one does require registration. The second Wednesday night of every month, we have one more chapter book club at McCullough. It starts at 6 p.m. for those who are interested. And you can call McCullough and find out what the book du jour, or maybe I should say book of the month, not the day, will be for the upcoming meeting. And if you want any more information on these events or other activities going on at the library, you can always check our website at events.evpl.org. And that will get you to our calendar. Well, thank you, Sharon, for joining us here at EVPL while we have a conversation about Shakespeare. It was great to have you. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Jamie, thank you for organizing this upcoming Shakespeare event. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And with that, we'll see you guys next time. And check it out with EVPL. Bye. Bye. If you have anything that you would like for us to know about that we got wrong or you have an episode that you want us to talk about, anything like that, email us at podcast at evpl.org and we will do our best to cover it. Bye.